we're just dipping our toe in the water of uh, artificial intelligence and interventional radiology. But I think that, you know, five years down the road, we're going to look at it as one of these paradigm shifters, one of these game changers uh, that really probably is going to change what we do. Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Hannah Claude, a second-year medical student at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And I'm Ben Rausch, a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University Homer Stryker MD School of Medicine. So Hannah, it's been a little while since we've had an episode. It has been indeed. The podcast has been a little bit difficult to produce because right now, me and many of our other team members are fourth-year medical students, which means we are quite busy on the interview trail. So for all of you guys listening, wondering about those fourth years and their trail experiences, look out for an upcoming episode where I sit down with our fourth years and have a roundtable conversation with them so we can learn a little bit about the ins and outs of the interview trail. Yeah, that'll be exciting, especially for myself, where I'll have a chance to vent a little bit about uh, (laughs) airport travel and rental cars. Yeah, and the cost of interviewing. Oh, man. Something I try not to think about right now, but yeah, it'll it'll be great. Oh, I know. And not to forget the rest of our team members, like Adam and Eric and others who are in their third year of medical school and are very busy on rotations right now. And a lot of our team members you'll be hearing from throughout the rest of the season. And we have a lot of new team members as well that will be adding their voices to the podcast. So with that, we are very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Ben and I sit down with Dr. Charles Ray, former president of the Society of Interventional Radiology, to chat about the leadership and future of IR. So Dr. Charles Ray is a professor and interim dean of radiology at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Ray earned his medical degree at Rush Medical College and then completed his diagnostic radiology residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Afterwards, he completed his fellowship in vascular and interventional radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. So obviously he has a very impressive resume and it was so much fun to sit down with him and talk about IR and the future and also his own personal experience becoming president of the Society of Interventional Radiology. And he was so down to earth and just really insightful advice for, I think, anybody in their career in IR. Yeah, I agree. I think he touched on a lot of things we planned on, like the future of IR and, you know, how he became a leader. But one of the things that I really liked that he talked to us about, Hannah, is uh, when he talked about mentorship. I thought that was very interesting. The points he made about what to look for in a mentor and how to be a good mentee as well. Yeah, I agree completely. Some really good high-yield take-home points that I know that I can incorporate uh, into my mentorship relationships, like right now even. Definitely. I think often as we get involved in IR, everybody's looking for mentors. Everybody wants to learn more about the field. And one of the things I really liked is he mentioned that one of his best mentors was someone that was just a brand new attending, who now, I won't spoil it for you, you guys will have to listen, is a very distinguished member of the field of interventional radiology. But at the time, it wasn't necessarily about that. It was, it was about someone that was accessible, motivated, and excited to be his mentor. I completely agree. I also liked his points on the future of IR. How did that make you feel hearing him talk about where the field is going and the role of artificial intelligence? I think it's so exciting. As I mentioned, I'm a second-year medical student, so just on the cusp of 
even dreaming about entering the medical field. But it's such an exciting time to be at the crossroads of choosing a specialty and, and perhaps even becoming an interventional radiologist. And knowing that there's so much more forward momentum in this field is something super exciting. And I think it's something that IR can boast about that maybe some of these other specialties can't. I absolutely agree. And here's our conversation with Dr. Ray. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray, for joining us today and being on air with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. So just to start off, can you tell us how you became interested in IR and what your journey was? Uh, Sure. I um, In medical school, I did a combined MDMS with my MS in anatomy. So I knew that I wanted to have a highly anatomical field. Uh, Plus, I was horrible in physiology. So that left um, surgery or radiology or pathology, really. And um, I chose radiology with an eye on interventional because I liked both the imaging component and the IR, or at that point, angiography and special procedures component. Um, Then when I started residency, uh, because of the degree of autonomy we were given back then, um, I was able to have a lot of hands-on experience in my residency, which just solidified uh, that I really wanted to do something with the hands-on approach as well as a cognitive approach. So um, I half lucked into it, but half of it was sort of uh, predetermined, I think, in some ways. Hmm. That's interesting. I, it's funny, as we've done these episodes and had these conversations, how often that's the case. People find their way into IR in a variety of ways and with a little bit of luck. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of luck and a lot of mentoring. You know, if you don't happen to have the right mentor in residency, then uh, oftentimes people end up in a different path, don't they? Definitely. Well, you mentioned mentors. I do want to ask because the field is so new and a lot of the pioneers are either still alive or we're just one or two generations into the field. Who were your mentors as you uh, found your way into IR? Right. So I've been lucky to have several mentors um, all the way along the path. As a matter of fact, I still have mentors and I'm still seeking mentors. Um, But the one who stands out the most was a uh, junior faculty member at MGH when I was a fellow, and that's John Kaufman. Hmm. John um, was uh, just a couple years out, I think, from his own training uh, and was at um, in Boston before he went to the Dodder Institute. And John has remained my uh, mentor to this day. I mean, I still call him with, uh, you know, problems that I might be dealing with or rarely uh, is it about a case at this point in our, in our careers, but Oftentimes, with you know personnel issues or political issues or whatever, I just find him to be very savvy as a as a researcher, as a clinician, as a friend, as a colleague. He's you know, he remains my uh, my greatest mentor, I would say at this point. I think that's so cool that like how you mentioned you still have a mentor who you go to, and and you mentioned that the reason why you go to your mentor changes as you advance in your career. But I think that's such a powerful thing to say that you've got a mentor still and you still seek other people's help or advice um, when you need it. So I really admire that. Oh, yeah, there's no, um, I actually would make an argument that you need more mentors rather than fewer as you go along. It's, you know, I was lucky in that John was a research mentor and a clinical mentor and education mentor, but oftentimes those are three separate people. Um, So you, you happen to hit on a flashpoint with me, but um, in terms of mentoring, I, I, you know, why we limit people to say who is your mentor um, with formal mentoring programs, as an example, I, it kind of, it kind of drives me crazy because 
you shouldn't have one mentor. You should have 10 or 12 or 20 or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely like that sentiment because, you know, I'm, I'm at a medical school that doesn't have a residency in radiology. There's a few private practice IR guys uh, here locally who've been great mentors, but I've had that experience of having to reach out to a lot of different people. And I like that that's something that you continue to feel is important. So speaking of uh, mentorship, what would you say would be some of the qualities that students should look for in a mentor and how to build the, the relationship with a mentor? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. I think um, I think I would focus on two things, and they're not they're not what what most people think of. I think I think one is that you need to have a real personal connection with your mentor. If if they're a fantastic researcher or a dynamite clinician or whatever, but there isn't that personal connection, I don't think it's going to work well. You're much better off focusing on how it feels to be with that individual. Than their accomplishments. I mentioned before John Kaufman, you know, he's now the god in interventional radiology, <laughs> but when he became my mentor, he was he was a junior attending that nobody had ever heard of. So, you know, I, I didn't I didn't pick the more senior people. Well, I don't know that I picked John, you know, but um, it, it you know, things just turned out that way, but that certainly isn't how they started. It started with a, a personal connection. Um, and then the second thing I would I would tell people to look for is availability. Uh, sometimes people are so busy that they just don't have the time. Even even though they might really want to be a good mentor for you, they might just not have the time or the bandwidth. And I, I think an, an open conversation with your men, your potential mentor um, is reasonable to say, you know, I'd I'd love for you to mentor me as much as possible, but do you feel that you have the time? Uh, and sometimes it's better if people don't have the time to just, you know, go your own way. Mm-hmm. And as a follow-up and sort of inverse of the question I just asked, I'm sure that you've been mentors to many, many students and many other colleagues. What would you say would be some of the attributes in a good mentee? Yeah. What should a mentee do to optimize the mentor-mentee relationship? Right. Yeah. Okay. I've never been asked that question before. That's a great one. Well, I think. First of all, you need to be willing to show your weaknesses. Sometimes when you have a relationship where there's a clear subordinate and where, there, where clearly there's somebody in charge, the subordinate oftentimes wants to pretend like they know more than they do. Mm. And in a true mentor-mentee relationship, that's the worst thing that you can do because then you put up a ceiling with what you can really learn from your mentor just by trying to prove that you're, you know, you're, you're something that you're not. <clears throat> and that's a very difficult thing to do because you want to, you want to impress. You want to show your mentor that he or she has picked the right person to be a mentor for, that they are, um, you know, that they should be as excited because you're super smart or whatever it is. Um, but if you're unwilling to show that to show what you don't know, you're probably um, putting a, a real significant limit on what you're going to be able to gain from that mentor-mentee relationship. I like that a lot. I think I, I heard someone say once that one of the most powerful phrases in the English language is "I don't know." Yeah, right. It's hard in medicine to do that. No, that's a really good point. I think it it might be harder in that relationship with the professions, whether it's 
medicine or law or business or whatever than it is in some of the others because of the very sort of highly functioning individuals. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So as you have moved throughout your career into more more leadership roles, can you tell us a little bit about how that path unfolded for you? Sure. Um, are you talking about SIR in particular or? Well, let's just say in general and I, SIR as well. Okay. Um, well, I think I would separate it into a couple of different, uh, I, I think I would put SIR or other societies or the college or whatever in a little bit of a different bucket because I think the path that one takes in those is a little bit different than your paying job. So if we take SIR as, as an example, uh, you know, I would say that uh, the one bit of advice I might give somebody if they were to ask me, well, how do I get involved in leadership in the society is um, that you have to put your, your hat in the ring for many things before something sticks. So, which means that you might, if you say that you're most interested in, oh, I don't know, uh, membership, being you know involved with membership, but the only thing that's available is in postgraduate education. Well, that's okay. Uh, you might want to take whatever volunteer opportunity comes up first, um, distinguish yourself in that, and then eventually you make everybody shortlist for the next position. So. Rarely um, do you luck into uh, the area that you're most passionate about, where there is a, an opening at the same time that you're looking. Hmm. Uh, so it's important important sometimes to to not say no uh, if something comes up that isn't really in your wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah, because at the end of the day, it's you know you're trying to. I think it. I hate to say it's a competition, but in some ways it is. If you want to take that next step, you need to somehow distinguish yourself. And you're not going to do that by sitting on the sidelines. Definitely. I think that's an interesting point because often in leadership, if you look at it like service, sometimes you sometimes you have to serve where you're needed. You know, it might not be the most flashy job. It might not be the most uh, distinguished thing, but you set yourself apart um, where you can and then gives you more opportunities later. So then with that mindset is... Can you tell us how you were able to use that and advance all the way up to becoming president of the Society of Interventional Radiology? Yeah, gosh, it was, uh, it sounds like a broken record, but there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of timing that you just, you just don't have control over. You know, there are many people in this society who uh, I have no doubt would have made better presidents than I would, but the stars just sort of aligned, you know, for me uh, in that. It, I was, I happened to be, well, it's hopefully the right person in the right place at the right time. So after some point, I truly believe that it's more luck and serendipity than it is uh, hard work that, that gets you past a certain point. Yeah, that's interesting. You've kind of touched on this advice already, but what, what advice would you give then to our listeners who are in different stages of their careers and have interests in, in leadership in general, whether that's in the society or in their programs? Let's take the society first. Um, you know, there is a, uh, the society now is much more coordinated in its efforts to get volunteers involved. And there's actually a formal volunteering process. So I would tell people to get involved with that early and often. And again, if something comes up that isn't necessarily exactly what you're looking for, just go ahead and take it. Uh, it doesn't just give you the chance to distinguish yourself, but it gives you a chance to do the work and figure out, well, this is this something I really want to do. 
you know, there are only so many hours in the week. And um, if you if you do this, then you're going to take from something else. So um, in terms of other leadership opportunities, uh, you know, I, I think one can look to formal education and leadership, but a lot of leadership is learned just on the job. Um, if you happen to be at a major institution with 15 interventionalists, you're, it's going to take you a while to work your way up that chain if you're able to at all, as opposed to being in a group with one or two people where you've got, uh, you know, diagnostic responsibility as well as interventional responsibilities. So leadership um, is going to look very, very different depending on the type of institution you're in uh, or the type of practice that you're in. And it's really going to be up to you to decide, you know, what's the best path for you individually to take in terms of do you try and go the leadership route or do you try and go in a different path? Hmm. Now, it's a little bit, I feel like a little bit of a poser answering that question because I've only been in academic institutions. Yeah. And I think that our individuals who are in private practice have every bit as much opportunity for developing leadership positions within their own practice, within their own healthcare system, definitely uh, within yeah. their own professional community in a lot of different ways. So. I really can't address that, except I know that the opportunities are out there as well. I think one of the things that you said that's like the biggest takeaway is just putting yourself out there, like you had mentioned um, a little bit earlier, and just tackling problems that might not be the most obvious and comfortable for you. But I think, like you said, that's that's sort of how you get your name out there. And also, as a byproduct, you strengthen your weaknesses by tackling different problems that you wouldn't normally. Yeah, I really like what you said. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, um you know, it allows you to expand your skill set and you might find something that you feel very passionately about. Right, exactly. I agree. So something else you had mentioned was that SIR has changed a little bit since the time that you were president, which was from 2016 to 2017. So uh, what are some of the changes that you've seen in SIR, the society, and also the IR community at large uh, since the time of your presidency? Oh, boy. Well, you know, the time of my presidency was just when the residency, the IR residency was kicking off. Um, so we've seen the product of, um, of everything that we've done over the last many, you know, 10 to 15 years. So I was fortunate to be there right, right during the kickoff. And now when you look back three years later, it's amazing. You know, we, we are now the most sing, the single most, um, uh, competitive medical specialty out there. If you look at the number of candidates per position. Um, medical students know who we are, uh, which is incredibly exciting. It wasn't too terribly long ago where, you know, our mothers didn't know what we did, much less <laughs> medical students or be physicians. So, um, you know, I think that's been a, a absolutely huge change is that the residency program has expanded our scope among medical students. Um, we used to be you know, society that really was practicing IRs and trainees in IR. And now the single biggest group after practicing IRs is medical students. Uh, last I heard, there were 1,300 medical students or somewhere around there in the society, which wow. um, absolutely floors me. Absolutely floors me. Wow. That is, that is a lot. As a shameless plug, if you're listening to this and you're not a member um, on SIR, it is free for medical students, and there's a loads of great information and resources. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> so during your term, I mean, you touched on the fact that the 
the residency was sort of in its early stages as you were the president. But what initiatives or goals, if, you know, that one or others, did SIR accomplish that made you proud of the society? During my presidency? Yeah. Or, or oh, um, yeah. So every, every president, so every president serves for one year. And you're really, um, in many ways, in that office, you're more reactive than proactive. The mm. proactive initiatives come from the executive council. I see. Uh, where there are 17 different counselors and they're everything from private practice to uh, postgraduate education to graduate education to membership to everything. Um, and that's really where the heavy lifting and the initiatives come from. As president, you tend to be more, uh, I would say, reactive. And what we had to react to was um, macro-MIPS, which was the change in healthcare reimbursement. Mm. Um, it subsequently has sort of, I won't say petered out, but I would say leveled out. Uh, so it's, it requires far fewer resources and far less time. Um, I will say that that was, if I could have picked something, that wouldn't have been it. <laughs> it's very dry. It's not, I'm not an MBA, so it's not my wheelhouse. Uh, but it was, you know, it was, it, it was kind of the hand that you were dealt, and it's what we had to deal with to make sure our members were were covered uh, or represented well during the whole macro-MIPS changes. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't sexy, it wasn't particularly fun, um, but it was what the uh, society membership needed at the time. Yeah, you know, it's something fundamental to the well-being of the field. So I'm sure, you know, everyone is grateful that you and the rest of the council leadership were able to do that and take that on. From there, what is... What is something that you'd like to tell the future interventional radiologists, you know, the 1,300 medical student members and the trainees, so that the next generation can enact change? Uh, I mean, first of all, you're in the best field in all of medicine, and I truly believe that. Um, you know, interventionalists have challenges that they, um, that they have to um, approach as well, but for the most part, um, I challenge you to find an interventional radiologist who would rather be in a different field. And I, I just don't think you're going to find very many out there. Uh, there might be some who are kind of over the changes in medicine that we are all seeing. Some who, you know, might have seen reimbursement drop. Some who think they're working too hard. But then ask them, well, what would you rather be doing? And if it's not winemaking, it's, you know, something else outside of medicine as a whole. <laughs> So I, I and I tr I truly believe that interventional radiology is is the best field in all of medicine and it's only continuing to get bigger. That's so great to hear. Like coming from someone who's been all the way at the top of the entire society and then is still working day to day, um, that's so encouraging to hear um, as someone who's trying to pursue this career. Oh, I I mean I can think of nothing that I would rather do. Uh, you know I. I certainly enjoy my time away from work, but for the most part, you know, if it was uh, it was up to me and I were to do it all over again, I wouldn't change a thing. Awesome. So talking about IR and the changes that are happening, what trends are you noticing um, in the IR community at large? Well, we are becoming more clinical uh, in that, you know, when I started, there were no IR clinics that you wouldn't. Uh, you might go write a note on the floor, but you wouldn't do a formal consult. You certainly weren't admitting your own patients. Uh, so that all is new, and that's all sort of um, 
I don't know, advanced the field in a very different way than I thought it would be. <clears throat> when I came out of, of uh, fellowship, you know, the IR was uh, a, a doctor's doctor. And my personal feeling is we're, we still are that, and that's still where, where our uh, bread is buttered is by acting as a consultant. Um, but people on the street actually are starting to know who we are. And I know that there are some people in this society and you know, people and I are in general who uh, think that that's not changing quickly enough. But again, if you look back 10 years, you know, it's, it's hard to change the culture of anything. And if you look back 10 years ago, uh, nobody really was talking about, seriously talking about, well, we should have our own clinics. We should have our own admitting services. We should have our own consults. So I, I think that, you know, one of the biggest changes I've seen over, over the last 20 years has been this focus on being a clinical, clinical doctor. I, I love that sentiment. That's something that I've, I've had a lot of discussions with uh, different attendings on the, on the interview trail about is, you know, we've, we've always been the quote unquote doctor's doctor and to become more clinical, uh, we have to become the patient's doctor. And I, per, I personally feel like, like you said, some people feel like the change isn't happening quickly enough, but I think a lot of that change is community based. You know, if, if you can become your patient's doctor where you are, you know, that'll make a difference where you are locally. And, you know, I, I think everybody can do that uh, to a certain extent. At least that's my personal feeling. No, I, I would agree with that. I, if I can throw in one other sort of corollary on this. Definitely. There is no one way to practice IR, and that's the, that's the beauty of it. You mm-hmm. know, um, I get frustrated when I hear people say that this is usually my way is the only way to practice IR. And I think that's bogus. I think that, you know, you can, um, if you're a, if you practice 25% of the time doing biopsies and you consider yourself an interventionist, welcome to the club. Yeah. If you are in a mega group where you're in charge of 10 IRs and you have a formal clinic and a formal consult service and you're doing very high-end stuff, well, welcome to the club. You know, there's no reason that we need to be exclusive. As a matter of fact, I would say that now is the time for inclusivity rather than exclusivity hmm. and trying to, you know, kind of circle the wagons and bring us all together is vital at this juncture, right? Yeah, I, I really like that idea because as medical students, a lot of what we hear comes from the society. And it also, I don't think we often see all the sides of it as someone coming into the field and recognizing that there's many, many different ways to to practice this specialty. So kind of going into that, where do you see IR going in the next 10 to 20 years, specifically with procedures being done, the clinical aspect of the field, both in your department and also nationally? Uh, I think we're going to, I think there are several things. I think we're going to be using the same techniques or similar techniques that we use now in different pathologies or in different organ systems. Mm. Uh, an example of that would be, you know, increasing use of RFA for lung cancer, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I also see us, you know, we are always uh, innovative and always technology driven. So I see us um, improving on what we already do, but also somebody coming up with something new. Prostate artery embolization, for example, you know, nobody even really thought of that 10 years ago. 
Uh, and now all of a sudden, you know, you can't go to an IR meeting without having it as one of the um, keynotes, you know, keynote uh, addresses. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, taking that sort of what we already do and translating it to different um, uh, beds, you know, like vascular beds, for example, or different pathologies. There is going to be something that comes along, though, because it happens every so often, something that comes along and it's going to rock our world. And, you know, many years ago, you could make the argument for tips. And then mm-hmm. it was stroke interventions. Then it was chemoembolization. You know, then I'm putting these out of order, but there's always, there have always been these paradigm shifters, these game changers. Um, so you get the incremental improvements, better technology, better techniques, better imaging chains, whatever. But then occasionally along comes something that just, bam, you know, just totally changes what we do. Um, you know, interventional oncology, which is a term I'm not fond of, but interventional oncology didn't exist 25 years ago. Yeah. And now it's really what the majority of IRs practice. Definitely. I, I like that idea of a paradigm shifting uh, procedure or, or technique or, or um, basically an intervention coming along. And do you feel like anything that's, that's sort of on the horizon or new right now is a paradigm shifter? Or, or do you think that we're still waiting to see. Yeah, I, I'm not that creative, <laughs> unfortunately. So I'll leave that to the uh, translational researchers or the basic scientists. But um, there's uh, all I can tell you then is there's going to be something. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know what. Definitely. So pigging back off of what that something could be, um, there's been a lot of articles and a lot of research going into artificial intelligence. And it sort of is pervasive in the medical field, but I know it has a really strong connection with radiology. So because you gave such an interesting and entertaining talk at the AAR Symposium about AI, could you just give us a little background um, about what AI is and what it has to do with um, interventional radiology? Uh, Sure. Um, I mean, AI has kind of an interesting history. And that it really, you know, we think of it as a, as a kind of a, um, uh, kind of a new phenomenon, but it really isn't. It had its origins back before World War II, uh, and kind of the father or grandfather of uh, AI is Alan Turing, who was a British computer scientist who came up with what what was called the Church-Turing thesis, and that basically stated that natural numbers can't be computable by human unless they're computable by a machine, uh, which exactly turned around the thought that, well, you know, something can't be done by a machine unless it's done by a human first. Uh, he took the opposite view. He was a tragic person, by the way, if you have a, a chance to read about him. Um, and then, you know, along came some machines that, again, kind of like Ben was talking about, these paradigm shifters. Deep Blue was the first one that was a, a chess um programmer, chess uh, computer, really, that beat the reigning world champion. That's going back about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a computer that was, you know, the size of a large man, and it was just uh, to play chess. Now you've got those uh, on your phone. And then there was Watson, which was uh, also IBM, and that defeated, handily defeated two Jeopardy champions in 2011. So AI has been around. It's not a new phenomenon, really. Um, you could also say that machine learning, uh, which is sort of a first component of AI, has been around for some time in diagnostic radiology. Uh, and really what diagnostic radiology is uh, in terms of 
finding the finding is just pattern recognition. It's the other stuff in actual interpretation that uh, still requires sort of a human touch. In terms of IR, um, you know, I would suggest that <clears throat> IR, uh, the way that AI affects IR, one way is in robotics. Um, that's sort of more machine learning than AI itself. Um, but then there's uh, uh, other ways in which AI really can, oh, can, can be extrapolated to IR. And there was a really interesting study out earlier this year in JVIR about predicting the treatment response to intrauterial therapy mm. with the use of AI. And what this did was it was a relatively small study, but it was basically a um, proof of concept study that machine learning and true artificial intelligence can be used to predict outcomes for things that we do. So, you know, just we're just dipping our toe in the water of uh, artificial intelligence and interventional radiology. But I think that, you know, five years down the road, we're going to look at it as one of these paradigm shifters, one of these game changers uh, that really probably is going to change what we do in a um, it's It's incredibly exciting stuff. That was a very long-winded answer. I, I apologize. That, that was great because it, it touched on a couple things that I, I you know, as, as medical students, we've all been exposed to the AI is going to, you know, replace all radiologists. But I, I do think looking at how it will affect interventional radiology is a little bit different because the, the way I think about AI or classically thought about AI is how it will predict things from static images, you know. Um, but interventional radiology is dynamic, you know. So, so I like the, the idea of like a predictive model of intraarterial therapy or, um, you know, or, or other concepts like that. Do you, Dr. Ray, feel that AI is going to decrease the demand for interventional radiology? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. Let me give you one way in which I think it might decrease, and that is with, for instance, uh, biopsies of pulmonary nodules. Mm. You know, I, I see AI having a big role on the diagnostic side of that, you know, being able to predict what is, I mean, you, you've already got pulmonary, pulmonary calculators out there, right? Yeah. That give you a prediction of, well, this pulmonary nodule is 77% likely to be lung cancer or whatever. I don't think that that's true, excuse me, machine learning, because I don't think it, well, it's not machine learning and it certainly isn't AI because it requires input from a human at, at this point in time. But eventually, I think that there's going to be machine learning with that. We're all going to, you know, if we all collated our data and all of a sudden, instead of hundreds of patients, you've got tens of thousands of patients that you could use machine learning algorithms to very quickly sort of delve into the realm of prediction. Yeah. If that makes sense. And so so once you do that, I think you're it's very likely that you might be able to forego some lung biopsies, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, my limited understanding is it's sort of like a, a quantitative analysis of, of, you know, like you said, lung nodules or or any other sort of imaging which will replace the qualitative analysis that's currently done. And if, like you said, if it's predictive, then why biopsy it? Because, you know, there's already a high predictive value and no need to stick a needle in someone's lung. That That's an interesting point I, I had not thought about. Yeah. Can I throw a monkey wrench into that? Absolutely. And that is with personalized medicine. Mm. Okay. So, so right now you say, well, okay, um, 
we're going to develop these AI algorithms, this deep deep learning that is going to give you a much better predictive value of whether or not something is cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, that still doesn't give you the molecular footprint or the molecular profile, which eventually is going to, going to determine what sort of therapy you get. Oh. Now, there might be things like liquid biopsies that come along that are going to change that, personalized medicine as well. But we're in the middle of this kind of perfect storm where you've got computational learning uh, that's combined with personalized medicine that's combined with advanced interventional techniques. Huh. I mean, you you ask what what IR is going to look like in the future, and I got to admit, I'm I have no idea. I have no idea. But what I do know is it's not going to look like what we're doing now. That's for sure. Yeah, that I, that's very interesting because you think about personalized medicine as farther focusing down and down and down, while AI is sort of broadening our horizon, and we're doing both simultaneously. And then. Yeah, so it's a very confusing and tumultuous picture, for sure. It is, yeah, but exciting. Going back to when you were talking about how IR is expanding its realm and it's increasing in modalities and and applying it to other organ systems, what do you think the interplay is going to be like between, you know, not not turf wars, but turf sharing, if you will, between uh, different specialties, different uh, sub-surgery specialties and how IR is becoming so broad and starting to be able to treat so many different types of pathologies? Yep, that's a million dollar question and that's a really good one. I would start out by saying that regardless of whether you're a doctor's doctor or you know a quote-unquote patient's doctor, you are always going to, the main, the main function of your job is always going to be as a consultant. We don't, we're not primary care physicians I don't want to be a primary care physician. If I wanted to be a primary care physician, I would have gone into it. You know, I love the consultant role. I love the fact that you know you're the first person that somebody calls with a problem. It's it's interesting to me the evolution. When I was a fellow, we were dying to have other services. We were going up on the floors trying to convince people. Well, did you know we could do this? Did you know we could do that? Now our fellows get phone calls and hang up the phone and go, oh, I can't believe they called here. Why wouldn't they call surgery? Why wouldn't they call GI medicine? Why wouldn't they? And I just look at them, I go, you have no idea how hard we worked to get us to the point that people think of us first. Hmm. And that's, that's a, it's a very, it's a culture change. And it's been fantastic to be able to see that evolve over time. And, and I'll take as many phone calls as you want <laughs> to send me. Uh, so long as you keep thinking of me first. So, so one of the ways I think that we deal with the the battles is by constantly proving that we do things quicker, we do things better, we do things safer. In many ways, we do things cheaper. And we haven't even gone that route yet. But I, I would I would take one step back as a final comment, Hannah, and I would say it's not turf battle. We don't own anything, nor should we. It's competition. And if we're going to get out there and compete against the other services who are other physician types who provide the same or similar services that we do, we have to we have to compete. We can sit there and bitch about the fact, well, it's not a level playing field. Well, you know, um, it isn't fair, blah, blah. Well, guess what? You know, life's not fair. <laughs> if you want the business, go out and go out and compete for it. And 
we've been incredibly successful in terms of being able to either keep procedures that we have quote unquote owned in the past or recouping some of those losses. Yeah, I'm I when you say like let the competition sort of win itself, I think that that should be the way that, you know, we develop some of these modalities. If IR can do it faster and safer and cheaper, then why should other specialties be doing it if it's not as safe, if it takes longer and if it costs more? So when we let the competition roll and let the dices roll how they may, it's it seems that it would make sense for IR to start taking up more of these modalities just because it's better for the patient. Right. No, I and I agree that things change slowly. You know, they do. Um, I happen to think that the one of the bigger arguments that we need to make are towards hospital administrators and healthcare administrators. Mm. You know, they're the ones that eventually, in many ways, uh, increasingly, especially, hold the purse strings. Um, and I don't just mean money, but I mean privileging and, you know, everything that is vital to getting a, a practice up and running. Uh, it's oftentimes these hospital administrators who hold the key. Uh, so making the value argument to them is as important as making the value argument to referring physicians, for example. That's a great point. I think the the role that you've been able to play in that while you're a president and also in leadership is fantastic. And I think as we continue as a as a field, we're all going to have to compete to keep our field thriving. Lastly, we kind of touched on this already, Dr. Ray, but if you if you're in an elevator with a med student who was interested in inter- interventional radiology and asked for some advice, what would you say to that student? I think if they were asking me if they were already convinced that IR is the field they wanted to go into, then I would have a different conversation with them because my conversation with them would have to be pretty forthright. And that is that it's a very, very competitive field at this point in time. So you need to do something to be able to distinguish yourself from the other candidates, whether it's, you know, you killed the boards or you've got great letters or you've done you know great research or whatever. You're probably going to need to have something to distinguish yourself. If I were trying to convince somebody to go into IR, that that one's easy. I just tell them, go find an IR, follow him or her for a day, and you're hooked. (laughs) That's the easiest conversation, and that would take three seconds instead of 10 seconds. (laughs) That's like a one-floor conversation. Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. Thank you again, Dr. Ray. I I think that's the totality of our questions. Thank you, Dr. Ray, for taking some time out of your day and joining us. Well, thank you, Hannah. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Ray. We we really appreciate you having this conversation with us. No, well, thanks, you guys. I, I learned a lot. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you would like to get involved with the Society of Interventional Radiology, you can check out our website for the link, or head to www.sirweb.org. And if you would like to read the article from JVIR that Dr. Ray mentioned, the link is in the show links. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season. If you have any questions or feedback, we would love to hear from you. If you're a practicing IR who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time. Thank you.